0: Well, hey everyone, Um, I'm Chet, and uh, welcome to one of the core team meetings here at Redeemer Church. Um, Today we're going to be talking about family. Uh, Family ministry is one of those essential parts of our church. Uh, You know, during this core team development, we've been going through our strategy, our vision, our mission, we've just been laying things out. And our mission here at Redeemer Church is to build a redemptive community of gospel-centered people. And one of the ways we see that happening is that we want to see redemption lived out in the home. Because we think family is, is essential to, um, well, it's essential to mankind, the existence of mankind. So, I mean, it's, it's so important to us that we make it one of our core values. So over the next two weeks, Logan's going to be up here and he's going to be teaching us on family ministry. So he's, today he's laying the biblical foundation, sort of the intro to the strategy uh, of our family ministry. And then next week we're going to be talking about sort of the nuts and bolts of what that looks like for Redeemer. Um, so this is a little bit different. This is not your know, kind of your typical worship service. This is a lot of what we're doing to to prepare our core team, those who are going to lead and launch our church, to uh, share the vision, to get behind it, to think of ways that they can become involved in helping this this strategy become a reality. So uh, for those that are new here, you know we're glad you're here. Um, it's going to be more teaching, sort of like an extended Sunday school, maybe, but. Uh, hopefully you'll get something out of it, that, you know, you're a family here, so it makes sense for you guys that, that we talk about family. And uh, so with that, I'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll get started. Yeah. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just praise you for this opportunity we have to gather together and think deeply about your design for the family. God, we know that the family is important to you because you exist as a family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that there are are persons within the Trinity who relate to one another, that you call Christ your Son. And so, God, we, we understand that our uh, our relationship as a family comes from your design. And, God, we want to honor that. We want to participate in that. We want to uh, commend that to others. Lord, we pray that you would use this body, this family of God, to uh, to develop, to edify to encourage families their each individual units to be clear reflections of your glory because God our desire is to honor you and we think that that is done um, one of the, in the one of the most clear ways through the family so God we we praise you for this opportunity we pray that our hearts and minds might be prepared to interact with your word and that you might speak to us today. We wait in anticipation for what you are going to say. Lord, I pray that you will just be with Logan in this time, and his thoughts and his words might be clear to us, and that the message that he speaks would be from your Holy Spirit. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
1: Well, um, before we get specifically to the stuff we're going to talk about with the family. Is this distracting to anybody for me to sit down? No? Okay. Since it is sort of a classroom format, one of the things, one of the sort of caveats I want to put in there is if I'm saying something and it's unclear, I mean, I'm not really preaching per se, so you can just raise your hand. I'd rather stop and answer questions um, because some of the stuff we're going to be doing today is sort of broad and moving across A significant portion of scripture kind of put some pieces together. And so it, you know, obviously it's clear in my head because I'm the one that wrote it. (laughs) But uh, uh, anyways, uh, basically I'm splitting this week and next week up into three pieces. I think uh, in trying to search out valuing something, you know, we value the family. It's one of our core values. So what does it look like to value something? Uh, and I think there's three steps in understanding that. First is the process. You know, what process are you using in terms of engaging? You know, for us, it's absolute truth in the Bible. Um, for someone who's not a believer, obviously their process would be just engaging whatever you know, they would call truth that they interact with. But uh, for us, we're engaging the scripture. Uh, and then the next part is the pattern. What are we finding in the Bible? And then the third part is the practice, Um, you know, how do we as Redeemer, how are we going to actually take what we have sought out and found and do that, not just in our homes, but also in the ministry of the church. Um, So this week we're going to cover the process. Most of the time, and I'm trying to think, I think probably this is the only time I've ever really talked about the process, because usually that's sort of what somebody's doing to prepare to teach. But I think that in this case, um, I can speak for my own family and from the families that I know that are here. Most of our backgrounds are sort of uh, skewed enough, our families are messed up enough that it's 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 easy to to realize that we're way far away from a biblical pattern. So I would like to talk about the process so that. In the future, not just the next two weeks, but in the future in your family, you have a model of what it looks like to be searching the scripture and looking at these things for yourselves. Um, So basically, you know, I wrote it another way, if that doesn't make sense to you, you know, you will search and then we'll have results, and then sort of like with Colson, you know, now how how now shall we live? So the first thing I want to talk about is the family. What is Family. I have a couple of of uh, definitions here before I go too far. One of the, the way that I organize this is I'll have a question at the beginning of each section, and then I'll just flow through sort of the logical progression of each question. So, what is a family? Andreas Kostenberger um, is a great biblical expositor at Southeastern Seminary, and he's written a book called God, Marriage, and Family, and it's probably the best book of our generation on, on the family in terms of the Bible. He's gone through almost every reference in the Bible on how the family plays out, and he's just a good, a good person that's wrapped his head around the family to think about his definition. So he defines the family as primarily one man and one woman united in matrimony, barring the death of the spouse, plus normally uh, natural or adopted children and secondarily any other persons related by blood. Obviously, that's a really technical kind of wording definition. Um, And then there's a group called the Coalition on Reformation. It's a group that is headed up by a guy named George, uh, I think it's R-E-K-K-E-N. He's a psychologist at at USC, the real USC in South Carolina. Um, <laughs> uh, he's a psychologist there and has done a bunch of work with John Piper and guys like he did some articles in, in John Piper's Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, so they had created these worldviews of different things, but they had one worldview on family, and I really like their definition. We affirm that God established the family when he joined Adam and Eve in marriage and instituted their relationship as a lifelong covenant and commitment to God and each other. And, I, and I, I wanted to add this one because I think it sort of adds a little bit of depth to what Kostenberger had said, and that I think you kind of get lost in Kostenberger's definition in that he says, you know, and normally, plus normally natural children, and, and it's sort of technical, whereas uh, in COR's definition, it sort of narrows it down to say, no, really the family starts with, Adam and Eve. Um, And so that's sort of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, I thought immediately of a bumper sticker I was given. We get this group, this local, I don't really know how to define them, sort of Christian pro-life group. I don't know that much about them. And they'll send us various resources to sort of combat the bad guys in Louisville, I guess, so they sent me this bumper sticker, and I had a picture of a man plus a woman equals family because there was some legislation going through, you know, to allow gay marriage in Louisville or in Kentucky. So I put it on my car, and I never really thought about it, but in preparation for this, I started thinking, you know, that's really the essence of what what the Bible teaches, that it's one man plus one woman equals family, with or without Mm -hmm. kids. The kids are an extension of that original family. So I want to look at some passages, and uh, one of the ways I want to keep you guys involved is I want to have some people read some of these passages. Uh, So we'll start in Genesis 1. It's probably a pretty good place to start. If somebody would read for me, let's see, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Anybody want to volunteer? Okay. And then if somebody would read for me uh, Genesis two eighteen, and then verses 21 through 24, and then I'll read 131 afterwards.
0: Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth.
1: And then will somebody read 2.18 for me? 2.18 and then 21 through 24.
2: Then the Lord God said, "It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him." So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, into a woman, and brought him and brought her to the man. Then the man said, "This is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of the man." Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother,
1: and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what I want, I want us to see here in verse 24 of that last passage, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Um, so we see that right there in the beginning, uh, God is creating a new family when the man breaks apart from his father and mother. And joins with a woman. So here's the first place that we see an indication. I mean, you know, you can't get much further back than this. But here's the first place where we see an indication that God is saying, this is a separate unit, with or without children. This is the primary unit of the family. And um, the reason I wanted to read this and the section before, if you look at the end of chapter 1, if we start at, let's say, verse... 31, well, just go to verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day, and then the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about how he rests, or the word talks about how God rests from his creation, and then it jumps into the creation of man and woman. So some people said, well, this is a contradictory part of the Bible. Well, what Moses is doing here when he wrote this is that he's actually splitting this section, the rest of the Chapter 2 is is just an expanded version of what we read in chapter 1. So when God makes this statement, or when Moses makes the statement in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, it's inclusive of everything that he was talking about in chapter 2. Does that make sense? It's just a bigger narrative to blow that out. And that doesn't seem like a big point to make, except for the fact that he says it was very good. Now, through the other five days of creation... God had said, this is good, this is good, this is good. It's extremely clear. He net, the verbiage never changes until the sixth day when he says, this is very good. And the reason being, because now he's created man, the pinnacle of his creation. And how did he create man? He didn't create man and then leave man and rest and then come back and make woman. No, as part of the creation of man back in... in uh, Verses, Let's see here. In verse 27 of chapter 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the first family was created before the end of creation. Now, it sounds like I'm splitting hairs. But, I mean, it's important to see that when the text (laughs) is saying that God said it was very good, it was complete all by itself, he's pointing back to Adam and Eve. And not just Adam. So, I mean, that that says Adam and Eve were created perfect. They were complete without children. They were a family unit. They were our first parents. Um, And God declared that the couple were part of the finished creation and that they were very good. And so we see that from this, you can conclude that, that children are an extension of this original family. In the same way that Eve is an extension of Adam's life, because God did not breathe life into Eve. He did not breathe life into any of us. God breathed life into Adam. And so we share in Adam's life. Hence, you know, we share in Adam's sin. And then also through the new Adam, we share in the recreation through Christ. So why is this important? Why is it important to think about one man and one woman as the complete part of the family why would that be important to make that distinction as opposed to just talking about families as we think about them well it's important It's important for a couple of reasons but the first reason we'll find in Ephesians 5 now like I said before this is not I am not you're not going to derail me if something is unclear and you raise your hand so if we did something and it doesn't make sense feel free and just say hey you don't make any sense well, please don't say that. That might, that might throw me off. <laughs> Just say I don't understand. <laughs> uh, would somebody read... Well, here, I'll tell you what. Let's break this up. Will somebody read chapter 5, 22 through, let's say, 27, and then somebody read 28 through 33? Somebody want to do the first half? Okay. Will somebody do the second half?
0: Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife
1: see that she respects her husband. So Paul's trucking along and you're thinking, I completely understand this passage, and then all of a sudden, at least for me, he shifts gears in verse 32 and he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. And you're like, well, I thought he was talking about husbands and wives. You know, what is he saying? Um, well, I think there's a couple parts that we can find that from it. In the further back in chapter four, you have this section where Paul is talking about how the gospel is displayed in the church. And then because of that, in verse 25 in chapter four, he says, "Therefore, and he goes through some things. And then at the beginning of chapter five, here's the next, therefore. This is the next thing that's building upon his understanding of the gospel as it plays out in the church. And it talks about family, it talks about sexual immorality, uh, and it points essentially to the right relationship of the husband and the wife. And this is the end of it. This is sort of the extension. So he caps the end of that section by saying that the mystery is profound and that he's saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Um, However, let each one of you you love his wife as himself. He's, He's not saying that we should not be taught by this passage But he's saying, don't lose your focus. The passage is really not about us. The passage is about us reflecting Christ. So why is it important to think about the husband and the wife being the primary unit of the family? It's important because the scripture very, very specifically speaks about the husband and the wife as one unit being a direct reflection of Christ in the church. So if if you include... Um, any variation that we would consider family um, into our definition of family, whether it be adding kids or you know aunts and uncles that live with you or grandparents or whatever, then you don't have a clear picture of what the Lord is trying to say in the scripture in terms of his reflection of the family reflecting the gospel as it plays out in the church. Does that make sense? Um, So that's why it's important to to be defining this as one woman and one man. So marriage is a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is defined as one man and one woman. Um, And marriage is a visible reflection of invisible truth. It seems to me that one of the things that Paul's getting at here is that in the same way that we hold up baptism as an ordinance to say, here is someone who is saying, I have been killed with Christ and raised to new life. It to new life. To new life. Hopefully not to new life. Uh, Uh, If I have been raised to new life with Christ, I'm showing that in the ordinance of baptism. I'm allowing that to be an outward reflection of what Christ is doing inwardly. In the same way, the family is an outward reflection of what Christ is doing invisibly within the church and through the gospel as he is working to redeem a people for himself. So it's extremely important that we that we define the family in such a way that we understand what we're talking about because the Bible is pretty specific about, about those parameters. So if, if the family, if the marriage or the family, however you define it, or however you want to talk about it, if that, that couple is a reflection of the gospel, of the relationship of Christ and the church, what kind of reflection, when we're thinking about that, is it? Everybody is a reflection of what they believe. You know, it's interesting how for so many years the family was held up as this ideal, you know, and, and you see that everybody said, well, you know, I mean, for the last 30 or 40 years, most people in America would have said the family is, you know, a husband and a wife and some kids and stuff. Although that's not really what people would practice. You had people that, that uh, you know, would marry 15 times or would have uh, adulterous relationships with many people, or they, you know, where we live, uh, I think I have met one couple, let me think, maybe two couples that are not believers that did not live together for at least a year or two before they got married. That's just that culture in that area. So, I mean, that's reflecting something about what they believe. It's reflecting something about what they think about marriage. So everyone is a reflection of what they believe. So what kind of reflection do we want to be? We want to be a biblical reflection. We want to reflect what we see in the scripture. So what does that look like? How do we become a better reflection? Well, according to Hebrews 1.3, and let me read that for us real quick. You don't have to turn there, it's just one verse. And according to Hebrews 1.3, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. But I want us to think about how Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. So if we're, if we're thinking about the family being a reflection of Christ's relationship with the church, being a reflection of God's glory, how is God gloriously displayed through his gospel, and then how is that reflected in the family, then we have to think about Christ, because Christ Christ is the direct reflection of the Lord. So, um, let's turn to Matthew 16. So, how do we become a better reflection of the Lord? I think we do it by reflecting Christ. Now, it's easy to say that. It's easy to say, we reflect Christ. But how does that how does that really play out? I mean, I don't, I don't want this to be ambiguous. Obviously, we want to accomplish something and not be like some of uh, the more liberal churches that are around. I'm sure there's plenty of churches in town that I could say, don't you want to be a reflection of Christ? And people would say, yes, yes. And i say, what does that mean? I want to reflect Christ. Well, what does that really mean? Well, I want to be like Jesus. You know, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything. So, <clears throat> I'll read a little bit. Give you guys a break. Uh, let's see Matthew sixteen twenty four through twenty five. Then Jesus told his disciples, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it." So part of looking like Christ. Um, and if you want to flip over to Colossians with me, Colossians three, part of, lose, part of reflecting Christ means that we need to lose our life. So in 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 losing our life, obviously Christ doesn't mean you know there it doesn't mean that we're killing ourselves physically there was a guy that was connected to a church that I went to when I was younger, and he had read uh, Matthew, and I don't even, I'm trying to think where it said in Matthew, and where it says, you know, you should gouge out your eyes. It's better to lose a member of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And so he continually, his, his parents, he was a little off, and his parents kept having to keep things from him because he would try to shoot himself in the eyes and poke out his eyes and stuff. I mean, obviously, that's not what Christ means. He's not saying, you know, in your life right here, now that you've become a Christian, so what does it mean? In Colossians, 1, in Colossians 3, 3, 1, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then in verse 5, he starts to play out what that looks like. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he has a whole list. And then if you jump down to verse 12, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then he has a whole list of those things we put on. Now, hopefully all of us would recognize that these are things that are impossible for us to actually do. I mean, it's not like you wake up in the morning and uh, peel off a little bit of your sin and then put on, you know, get out a little bottle of... Of, of the Holy Spirit sprinkling him on your back or something. Uh, it doesn't work that way. There is something spiritually that's happening that is outside of ourselves. God is acting from outside of us upon us. Uh, so, so we are working to look like Christ. So how do we do that? We, we must put ourselves to death to put off our thoughts of family and put on the Lord Jesus so how do we know him and be more like him? How, what does this look like for us to put off ourselves? Uh, I think that that is pretty apparent for most of us, where we are praying diligently and seeking diligently to not do those things that would be not reflective of Christ. Most of us understand where our sin is, and the difficulty is in not in putting that off, but and then leaving a vacuum and not filling it with Christ. What does it look like to put on Christ as we are trying to push away the bad things? I mean, we're not legalistic, so we're not looking to just do the right things. We're looking to be changed because of our connection to Christ. Is that clear as mud? I'm getting some strange okay. Um So how do we know him to become more like him? What does that mean for us to be not just not doing things that we see that the, the word is calling us not to do, but actively putting on Christ, actively looking for Him to change us, so that we might be different? Um, well, we'll start in Romans 12, and if you'll stick there, there's a couple of, there's a couple of things I'd like to say from there. And I'm sorry we're jumping around so much. Um, to paint the broad brushstrokes of this process, uh, I wanted to pull together a couple of chunks from several different places so that we can see sort of patterns, so that we can work through this uh, linearly, although the Bible doesn't work linearly the way that we think. Uh, one of our challenges in, in understanding the Lord, one of the graces that He allows us to understand. It. But in 12.1, Paul says, "'I appeal to you, therefore, brothers,' By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So there we have, um, we're putting off ourselves. We're dying to ourselves. We're looking to no longer be led by our desires. We're no longer looking to seek after what is best for us. We're offering ourselves up as, as a sacrifice. That seems to be pretty clear. So then how do we put on Christ? So he says in verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. And that's ultimately what we're looking for. We're looking to be transformed by our, our connection to Christ. We're not looking just to put off the bad things that we do, to stop smoking and drinking and cussing and uh, running around and, and, you know, whatever else. I mean, I, I can go through a long list. We don't need to. Uh, you know, we're looking actually to be transformed. We must be transformed by reading and studying the Bible and seek to make prayerful application. Uh, and I, I think that it's clear from our understanding of the whole of Scripture that this these verses are not just talking about just reading and studying the Bible. But the prayerful application is important because the transform, transformation doesn't come from within. It does come from without. It's Christ acting upon us to make us more like him. And so how does that function? Well, in verses 3 and 4 of that same chapter, we start to see that that this is not something that happens in a vacuum. Paul goes on to say, For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function. So, I mean, it's the same thing, Paul. Allison and I were talking the other day, we were talking about how, It's not always easy to understand by reading a couple verses out of Paul's writing exactly what he's talking about. You have to continue to go on and read large sections and to see what's in the context. So this first couple of verses, it looks like, you know, he's talking about us. He's talking about me. He's talking about me. I'm at home by myself in the corner. Everybody's asleep. I usually have my quiet time in the morning before I go to work. And I'm just sitting there reading and I'm thinking verses one and two. Okay, that's about me. So I'm good right here. Here I am, by myself, in the dark. Everybody else is asleep. And then I flip over and read verses 3 and 4, and I suddenly realize that what Paul is talking about happens in community. It happens among other people. So as we are seeking to put off ourselves and to put on Christ to be transformed by that, that transformation, the studying the Bible, memorizing the Bible, meditating upon the Bible prayerfully looking for change and transformation. That happens in community. That happens amongst other people. And then we see the same thing back in Ephesians. Uh, if you'll flip over there with me real quick. I thought about putting bookmarks in here. It would be easier for me to go to places, but I don't have that many bookmarks. Um... In uh, Ephesians 4:11 through 16 he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So this is a, a living faith and knowledge of the unity that we're gaining in community, This is where we're putting Christ on. This is what it looks like to mature manhood. So it's not just an understanding. It's a growth into that understanding. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So there you see also that it's not something that is just from without. It's not just a knowledge of Christ that helps us to change. But then we are actually changed. So that coming from out of us, we have a better understanding of how to combat these doctrines and the winds of change. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together, joined and held together by every joint which, with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so this is the display of the gospel that Paul is pointing back to when we read in chapter 5, therefore, and then it gets down to wives, submit to your husbands. And hus- or, yes, and husbands, love your wives. The reflection of the gospel that we see in the marriage is reflecting back upon this. This is the gospel as it plays out. It is a change within us. It is us changing by reading and studying the word, but in community. So where Luther said, um, no one has Christ or God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. What he's saying is there is no gospel, there is no life in Christ disconnected from the family of God. So as we're thinking about the marriage reflecting the gospel, it is the gospel played out in the church. So we become more like him by being transformed in community. So what are the implications for family ministry? So this is sort of the process of how we get to where we wanna go. We are studying and reading the Bible together. We are learning to grow, to put off ourselves, and to become more like Christ. And we are doing this in community. We're doing it just like this. Uh, I had a professor one time at seminary. Somebody asked him a question about, uh, and I don't, I can't remember the question right off but something about spiritual warfare. And he said, well, let me stop and back up for a second. <clears throat> this is spiritual warfare right here. And everybody, you know, we're all like, what, what are you talking about? You know, because it seems like a tangent. You're really focused. You're, you know, you're in a seminary class and you're you're drinking water through a fire hose. I mean, it's just coming. And there's no way to slow down, so you're doing your best just to hold on. And then he just stops right in sentence. And he's like, well, this is spiritual warfare. And, and we're all thinking, you can't shift gears like that and not have some sort of bridge up. And he says, no, this is spiritual warfare. When we all get together and we discuss the truth, we are combating the spirits that would have us to not understand Christ, to not know Christ. This is spiritual warfare. To understand who Christ is, to understand theology, to understand who God is, just us talking about it and proclaiming the truth, that is spiritual warfare. And so this is, that's exactly what I'm saying, that in community, in the church itself, as we meet, when we talk, we are fighting against those things that would cause us to become more like the world as we were before. So, what are the implications of all this process for family ministry? Well, our charge from these verses that we've looked at is to seek to be more like Jesus. To be clear reflections of the glory of God as we see it in the face of Christ. So, in terms of families, our vision for family ministries, or ministry to families, is to be clear reflections of God's glory. So, as... Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the nuts and bolts of how this plays out. You know, we'll talk this week we talked about the process of how we get there. Next week, we'll talk about some of the main patterns we see in terms of family. And then we'll talk about uh, our practice as a church. How does that bleed out into what we do? And it will bleed out in every way. I mean, this is absolutely fundamental. Our understanding of how the gospel functions, how Christ is connected to his church that is displayed in our connection um, to our spouses. And then therefore, as we define that, that will tell us how every other connection is made. Whether it's with our immediate families, whether it's with the the churches of family, whether it's with our children, grandparents, parents, brothers, sisters, um, no matter where we are, all of us are connected to people in some way. So we want to be clear reflections of God's glory so in the future, we'll be talking about, uh, as we search the scripture, what do we see? And what implications does that have upon family ministry? So, now I'm open to any questions for the parts that anybody was too embarrassed to raise their hand while I was actually talking. <laughs> Just remember that if you have a question you don't want to ask it, there's probably so a lot of people who want to ask the question that they
0: but they're hoping that you'll ask it first, so they won't to
2: so the So, just uh, the summary, so I think right, because you mentioned that, you know, we want to be a church that, acti- that actively is like Christ, is pursuing to be like Christ, and just saying to become like Christ. So, the uh, what you came, to, what your points, main points were following that, where we want to... Uh, want to reject sin and put on Christ, we want to study, him through. We want to study the Word and
1: apply it and want prayerfully to go through is that kind of your, your method
2: out right. behind that? Yeah,
1: so that what happens is this is how we do it. This first week, this is how we do it. This is how we get to where we're going. But at some point, um, hopefully, which we'll start hopefully next week, hopefully we'll get to a point where we're sort of on the same page next week as to far as what do the patterns of the scripture, there's a couple of main patterns that we see in it. Almost every passage you have about husbands and wives. And how that plays out. The relationships between men and women in general. And then what will happen is, we'll take that pattern and reflect upon that. And then that will become our practice. So that, you know, if we're saying, I mean, we would all, everybody here, if I asked you and I said, you know, what, how do you want to... Live out your Christian life in what in any particular area. You would say, well, of course, I'm you know I'm going to do what the Bible tells me to do. But the goal is we use the process of searching the Scripture to say, well, what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. And so we'll talk about a few of the patterns and take what God has said and not what we think. Um, and then from that we'll build out. So that will lead into everything. I mean, the the Allison and I were talking on the way up in the car. I mean, I don't want to jump too far ahead in in, mm-hmm. in my teaching, but uh, we were talking on the way up in the car, you know, she asked me, Well, what does that mean for like single people or for children or for whatever? Well, for you I mean for you personally, i should using examples if you ask. <laughs> so so it's to just completely deter anybody else from asking questions. I'm just uh, for you to understand what it means to to Be a man in marriage? What are the roles that a man is to reflect as part of the gospel? It doesn't change when you're in marriage or outside of marriage. You are still called as a man to be performing those functions. The difference is, where do you perform them? And then, so the challenge for you is finding places outside, since you're not married, outside of a marriage to, to perform those functions. The challenge for me as a married man would be to not only find the implications in my marriage, but to be doing the same things, to be pushing out and allow those things to bleed into everything. So my role as the way that God has designed me as a man, I'm to play that role with my wife as it's reflective of the gospel, but I'm to play that role with my kids too in a slightly different way. I'm to play that role um, in the church, let's say leadership, you know, I'm, I'm to be the head of the home, so I lead my yeah. wife, but then I also lead my kids so then I also lead in the church, even if I have no formal leadership position, every man that's a member of a church should take some form of leadership. Even if it's just organizing yourself while you sweep the floors. I mean, there is that's not laughable. That is, you know, you are to be leading in whatever area you've given responsibility over. Um, and so how does that, and you just keep leading it out. What does it mean for me to lead in my immediate biological family? What does it mean for me to lead... In leading other people that are in the church that may not be connected to a family, you know, and so that's that's where we're headed. We have the process, and now um, we'll look at some of the patterns that we find in that through that process, and then what that will define how we do family ministry and how we think about it. Because ultimately, family ministry is sort of like uh, biblical counseling. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's giving each other counsel. Everybody's trying to give truth, the question is we have to, as a church, make sure that we're rightly defining how we think, what are the patterns in the scripture in terms of the family, so that when we are doing these things, we're doing them well. You know, everybody's a theologian. Are you a good one or a bad one? So everybody talks and thinks about family. Are you doing it well in order to glorify God and to point people you come in contact who back to the gospel to say, the family should look like this because... This is a reflection of Christ in the church. And since that can't change, well, then we know that the structure of the family can't change because God has defined it. He's linked those two inextricably together.
2: Thank you.
1: That was probably a really super long and sort of a really concise question.
0: No, it's good. I, I think that you know, one of the things we struggle with is, as elders in thinking through this whole thing is we want, we want people's understanding of what it means to be a family ministry to change. That a family is not you know, this right here. That you are to think of yourself as a family, even if you're not yet married. You know that we exist in the family of God. So, uh, so even if you know you're a single person in your 60s, you know that has never, never been married. You know you are still uh, need to have an under a proper understanding of family in light of the biblical view, in light of God's standards, and how does that affect the way that you do what you do? And so, you know, Logan took us through this process so that we can really broaden that definition of family ministry and so that we don't, you know, we don't see that. And if that doesn't immediately apply to me because I don't have kids or, you know, you know, I, I'm, I'm engaged to a girl, but I'm not even married yet, that I'm not tuning out because this has this has direct implications on this. At all stages
1: of life. Sure. And we could spend years playing. I mean, we could, you know, people like Andreas Kosselberger spent 20 or 30 years creating that book. It's just reflections on the passages that he finds. It's not, there's not really that much implication. There's only maybe a fourth of the book. I mean, we could spend years and years talking about the implications. Um, And we'll do some of that next week. I mean, that's kind of what I, but I felt like um, this week, because the family is so unclear, biblically, in our minds, it's much more important to lay a solid foundation at the beginning than to be backtracking six months from now. Yeah. And so when we think about family ministry, that includes singleness, that includes
0: courtship, that includes issues of sexuality, you know, as we deal with the you know, homosexuality debates, you know, those kinds of things. All that's included under this umbrella. It's really broad. And
1: it, and it would also include the church as a family. Mm-hmm. Based upon that, how are we reflecting that? Um, a good example of that would be, we have adopted, uh, I used to work with an older lady that, that we sort of adopted as my, what well, we call her my aunt, but I have lots of, kids have lots of aunts and uncles that I've adopted over the years, that are friends of mine. Um, but we've adopted her as sort of my aunt and we spend a lot of time with her. She's a believer, she doesn't have any family, she's divorced, uh, her, hus- her ex-husband is dead, she has no children. Um, she has a sister, and that's about it. But we sort of adopted her. Well, so what does that look like inside of the church? That's one of our responsibilities. You're going to have um, older people that don't have kids. So for that person, they should be looking to become a surrogate grandparent for maybe a family who doesn't have family close by. And on the flip side, families should be looking to adopt them as a grandparent. In the same way that, that like Keith and I may act like brothers, Um, You know, and you joke about that. It's easy because, you know, we're guys and stuff like that. But there are some of those relationships that are not as easy. It's difficult to approach somebody and say, let us take care of you. But that's, I mean, that's some of the implications of it. But now I'm just going to keep on going and go through all next week's teaching too, so I won't do that. (laughs) Anyways. All right. Well, let me pray for us. And then, Father, we thank you. Lord, we cannot thank you enough that you are not a a distant, unknowable, unloving God um, that just rains down upon us rules and regulations um, like the Muslims' God that that just doesn't care for us but is only interested in us doing what you've commanded with no understanding of whether or not we would be saved. Lord, you have commanded us to repent of our sins and made us able to do that. And as we are able, you have given us immense, immense assurance and Conviction through the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we are saved, that we do not have to doubt what you are doing in the future. And you pour out incredible amounts about yourself, uh, about what you are doing, and ultimately your full plan of redemption in the Scripture. We are amazed that you have not left us to seek your face only in prayer and only in meditation upon the ways that you have sought us, but that you have given us your word that we might have clear revelation, that we would not have to seek to say, Lord, are you speaking to me now as I'm praying? But we can say, you have spoken, and here we have your word. So we thank you immensely for that, that you have not left us in the dark, but have given us revelation. Father, we ask that you would help us to love you as our Father and that we would seek to understand the way that Christ relates to the church and the way that that is reflected in a husband and a wife and a marital bond that we might understand how men and women are to carry out our duties to you in order to grow more like Christ in the church and beyond the church. Father, we thank you for adopting us into your family. And we pray that our understanding of the family would allow us to point other people to you, that you might adopt them into your family as well. Lord, we praise you for this day, and we thank you uh, for this gathering. We ask that you would Go with us today and allow the truths that are in your word to sink into our hearts. Please allow us all to forget any error or mistakes that I have made in presenting and only remember that which has come directly from the Holy Spirit.
2: We pray these things in Jesus' name.